Good morning. morning. Place that down there. I'm hoping I don't kick it over. (laughs) Well, welcome again to our our teaching service, and thank the Cunningham family for getting us started with great songs of worship and praise. You know, it's a privilege to once more have the opportunity to study God's Word, isn't it? God provided it to us. It's an essential, comprehensive handbook from the Creator of the heavens and the earth to each one of us, and I'm so glad I have it. Today we continue our study in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. The sermon is entitled, Honorable Living by Submitting and Suffering. That sounds ominous, doesn't it? But it's reality. It's becoming harder and harder to live as a Christian in America. As America becomes increasingly secular, the Bible-based beliefs that we hold dear are viewed as totally out of step with contemporary secular morality. There are more and more instances where Christians are being ostracized, hated and alienated, or speaking contemporarily, being canceled. It was for such reasons that the elders thought it was very important to preach and teach through 1 Peter, which addresses suffering. One more opening note. You may find some of the things we say this morning challenging. As other speakers have recently urged, I challenge you to be a good Berean. What did the Bereans do? They received the word with eagerness, but they examined the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. And I'd ask you to do that. Dig in there. Confirm in your own mind that what we're talking about today is what the Word says. Please join me in an opening word of prayer. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for giving this opportunity to study your Word together. We thank you for the United States in which we can continue to do so. As we continue our study in Peter, please clear our minds of distractions. Open our ears and hearts to hear the Holy Spirit speak to us. Help me to clearly communicate your truth. I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So let's begin with a short review. The epistle of Peter was written about the time Rome burned, and that's July of 64. The Romans living in Rome were sure that Nero had burned down the city. Why did he do that? Because he needed to clear space for his favorite hobby, which was building. Well, the lives of the residents of Rome were devastated. They lost everything. Nero looked for a scapegoat to divert their anger, and he settled on blaming the Christians. Nero caused rumors to begin that unjustly accused the Christians of, among other things, starting the fires in Rome, atheism, no idols and emperor worship, cannibalism, eating the body and blood during the Lord's Supper, Immorality, because of their love for one another. Damaging trade and social progress and leading slaves to insurrection. The rumors quickly spread across the empire. The text of 1 Peter seems to indicate the Christians of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia were experiencing escalating persecution. So what is the purpose of Peter? Well, there's many thoughts. Here's mine. Peter's purpose in writing his first epistle was to encourage the saints and teach them how to live victoriously in the midst of hostility and suffering. Context is always an important factor in Bible study. How does today's message fit into the entire book? Let's take a quick look. 
There are three main sections of the book, salvation, submission, and suffering. After a brief greeting, Paul lists the many benefits and blessings of salvation and the holiness that should result. Then Peter talks about how that holiness should translate into actions that are submissive. In the final section, Peter warns about suffering and persecution and instructs a Christian on how to have victory in such difficult situations. Peter closes his epistle with some final exhortations. If you remember salvation, submission, and suffering, you've learned the basic outline of 1 Peter. Last week, Mark Woodhouse completed the very encouraging section on grace and salvation. Did you catch all of those benefits? If you didn't, it's worth going back and look at it again. There's so many. Today we begin the section on God's grace and submission. We will learn about honorable living before unbelievers. Specifically, Peter addresses a Christian's correct relationship to government and employers. He states that the key to God-honoring relationship is submission, and if needed, suffering, based on the example of Christ. Next week, Mark Woodhouse will be back and will continue the submission section by addressing Peter's thoughts on submitting in the family and honorable living with other believers. Would you please stand with me and join in reading our text this morning? 1 Peter 2, 11 through 25. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is the gracious thing when mindful of God who endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. To himself bore sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. 
For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Please be seated. Let's begin looking at the text. Peter begins with a negative exhortation. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter had a deep affection for the Christians in Asia Minor, and thus begins his section with a heartfelt word, beloved. Notice two words. First, sojourners, which means to reside temporarily. What a pilgrim might do, just a traveling through, no attachment. And second, exiles, which are persons absent from their home country. Why sojourners and exiles? Because Christians are citizens of heaven. Remember, that's what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. Then Peter exhorts the sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage against the Christian soul. In this last section, Peter talked about being holy. And there, and, and here he exhorts the saints to avoid the unholy works of the flesh. Paul defines passions of the flesh that wage war against the Christian soul in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. He said, he writes, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then immediately contrast by defining the holy fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Moving on to verse 12. Peter adds a positive instruction. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is honorable conduct? Two points. First, honorable means purest, highest, noblest, kind of goodness, lovely, winsome, gracious, noble, excellent. Get the point. It's honorable. Honorable conduct is vital because it diffuses or eliminates the criticism of opponents. Second, it's important to note that genuine salvation is not just about head knowledge. True Christianity is expressed to the world around us in good works. Remember the strong words of James who wrote, In chapter 2, verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. And Paul's pronouncement in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Gentiles here means unsaved. So consider Daniel and Jesus as two examples of men with honorable actions that disarmed naysayers. Daniel chapter 6 tells a story of when the high officials of the Persian Empire sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel. They couldn't find, they could find no ground for complaint or fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. 
And then the Gospels document the sinless life of Christ's earthly ministry. At Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, in spite of the consul aggressively trying to generate convicting evidence, ultimately none was found. Matthew writes, Now the chief priests and the whole consul were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they could find none. The chief priests then falsely accused Jesus of blasphemy and said that no further testimony was required. Pure thoughts, pure actions take away the ability to criticize. How did Jesus get nailed? He got nailed falsely. That's the only way they could do it. They couldn't find anything to criticize. That's the point and the importance of our how we conduct ourselves day to day. Back to the text. Who are the evildoers that Peter refers to? In Peter's day, the evildoers were probably those that maligned Christians with vicious and totally unwarranted rumors that Nero had started. A few comments on the day of visitation. In the Old Testament, the day of visitation was a warning of God's drawing near in judgment or blessing. In the New Testament, visitation is associated with redemption. Thus applied to this verse, when the grace of God visits the heart of an unbeliever, he will respond with saving faith and glorify God because he remembers the testimony of the believers he observed. So what are these verses saying? Well, here's a press and paraphrase. My dear friends, as citizens of heaven, you are like pilgrims just a passing through this earth. So reject the fleshly passions of those who are citizens of the earth. Excellent, noble actions will disarm those who try to find fault with you and can result in them glorifying God when they accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. As a sovereign ruler of the universe, God has established four authorities on earth. Government over citizens, parents over children, the church over believers, and masters over employees. In our current text, Peter provides some specific details on the Christian's proper relationship with government. Christians are first and foremost citizens of heaven, but they're also citizens of an earthly nation. Their conduct with respect to their earthly citizenship must follow the king of heaven's rules. Those who love God obey him, states the apostle John. One of those rules is to submit to earthly government. The word subject is a military term, meaning to arrange in military fashion under a commander. To not be subject to or obey is a very serious matter called insubordination. Why is it for the Lord's sake? So that the good conduct of the Christian will bring glory to God. Rebellious conduct by Christians bring dishonor to Christ. Why? Because the Christian's rebellious actions negatively reflect on the Lord they claim as king of their lives. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor's supreme or to governors. Bottom line, be subject to and obey every or all governmental authorities, Christian or pagan. Here in the United States, the president and all members of his executive team State officials of all types, county and city officials, 
and the police of all ranks and jurisdictions when visiting other countries, their government officials. The Bible doesn't make exceptions for obedience with regard to competency, morality, and reasonableness. And we'll see that uh, in a moment when we illustrate that. In fact, the Bible shows many instances of people of God under rule of immoral tyrant leaders, like Nebuchadnezzar. Go back and read those passages about uh, in Daniel that describe Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he was a crazy tyrant, right? He was, in every sense of the word. And then Xerxes, the king in the story of Esther. Another guy that's like, oh man, man pretty far from uh, Christian morality, for sure. In the New Testament era was dominated by the Caesars and local kings like Herod and governors like Pontius Pilate. To remind when First Peter was written, the Caesar was a notorious Nero, who it is said dipped Christians in tar and set them alight as street lamps. Though the New Testament authors report many evil actions, consider Herod killing all male babies in Bethlehem under age two, the crucifixion of Christ, the beheading of John the Baptist, there's no negative analyses of governments. I couldn't find it. Search the scriptures. Jesus modeled obedience as respectful to Roman soldiers and government officials, ultimately submitting to their authority in the numerous trials before being crucified. Reading on, notice that governments were sent by him, that is God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. First, this means that every government was installed by sovereign God. In other words, there are no by chance governments. These governing authorities include what we would evaluate as the worst, for example, Attila the Hun, Hitler, Stalin. You probably have some names you'd add, and those considered much better, like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. In each case, God had a reason for installing the leader according to his grand purposes. And you read scriptures like Isaiah, and you can see where God raised them up for a purpose. And you see prophets who complain, how could you do that when we, they are worse than we are? God had a purpose. He had a purpose for Babylon. Seventy years later, Babylon was done. And Medo-Persia took over. And remember that each will be judged according to their works. Why did God raise up figures like Hitler? Well, we don't know. But we do know that God put him in power. That's what the Bible says. And in time, he was disestablished from power. And it was according to his plan. It did not happen by chance. What were those reasons? Don't know. But we trust in our God. Second, notice the primary purpose God had in mind for government. To punish lawbreakers and reward those with good conduct. Modern governments have added many additional duties, but have also unfortunately and increasingly de-emphasized punishing evil and rewarding honorable actions. There is another important reason to obey government. Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 parallels our current 1 Peter 2 passage in content, but adds an important conclusion. Reading, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that have exist are instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those that resist will incur judgment. If all authority is instituted by God, resisting authority, that is not submitting and obeying, it's actually resisting God and his will, will result in judgment. Certainly an important reminder of the importance that God places on submitting to the authorities he has put in place. Paul cites yet another reason why government is important in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings to be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. While the Roman government certainly had its negatives, the huge empire under a relatively stable government which enforced peace and with convenience of such convenience as well-built roads facilitated the spread of the gospel. Anarchy and chaos, chaos, an example occurred during the time of Old Testament judges when Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes, completely destabilizes society and makes evangelism very difficult. Back to our text, Peter goes on, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Who are the ignorant, foolish people? They are anti-Christians, those who just look to attack Christians. Often they don't even understand Christianity. Thus, in their ignorance, they make absurd claims and accusations. By being obedient citizens, we take away or silence their ability to criticize. When we are not obedient citizens, we provide fodder for critics to point out the inconsistency between faith and actions that leads to attacks on Christianity. Peter goes on with a warning, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Christians are indeed free from the irresistible pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and should live out that freedom. But Christians should never use freedom as a cover for evil. We are called to holiness. Betty Elliott was insightful when she talked about the liberty of Christian obedience, something that would make no sense to an unsaved person. Christians are free to be obedient to God, something they could not do before being saved. The liberty of obedience is living as a servant of God who is submitted to the governing authorities that God has established. The the Bible only permits an exception to obeying or submitting to government when a government command to a Christian directly conflicts with the teachings of the Bible. Four examples are normally cited. The Jewish midwives who were ordered to throw all male babies in the Nile to control the Jewish population. The midwives disobeyed Pharaoh. Exodus 1 notes that they feared God and did not throw the babies in the Nile. Daniel 3 records a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down to the 90-foot-high image of Nebuchadnezzar. 
and their miraculous salvation after being thrown in the fiery furnace. Daniel 6 tells the story of Daniel of Daniel refusing to obey the command not to pray to God. The Bible says, when Daniel knew that the law prohibiting prayer to any other than King Darius had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Knowing the suffering to come, the lion's den, that was part of the order, he thanked Almighty God for, for who he was and entrusted his well-being to him. Finally, Peter and the apostles were told not to teach in the name of Jesus and jointly replied, we must obey God rather than men. Well, what about bad judges or corrupt evil leaders? Well, they put Jesus to death, didn't they? Leaders that don't supply, so don't support a biblical worldview. Don't see an exception there. Taxes used for things not biblical. Is that a reason not to obey the government? Can you find those evidence of that in scripture? Not following the constitution? Is it okay then? None of these change the fundamentals though, do they? All governments are established and disestablished by God in accordance with his sovereign purposes, and God commands that we submit to his sovereign choices and times subject to the very narrow exception clause. Peter ends this section on citizenship citizenship with a four-point summary. First, a good citizen honors everybody. Everybody. Boy, that's huge, isn't it? Each person is a unique creation made in his image and has value and purpose. Further, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is God's view. Jesus came to save the lost and in his dying moments, he made sure a thief saw eternal life. That is God's perspective. Remember the words of James in the second chapter of of his epistle where he blasted partiality. I use that word because that's kind of James' talk, isn't it? Blasted partiality. We are to honor everyone, everyone. How do you do that? Because you see in them that unique creation from God, who that person is. Second, honor everyone, but take it to the next level with love for fellow Christians. Honor everybody, love fellow Christians. Third, fear God, meaning not dread, but to be awestruck by all he is. Fourth, one more push by Peter, that good Christian citizenship requires honor for the emperor, or apply today, the supreme earthly leader in the country we live in, and the government under that leader. What does honor mean? Honor is not just about obedience, but respect for the position and the fact that God installed the leader, the perfect fit for his sovereign plan. Important to note that this doesn't mean not standing for the truth. Remember John the Baptist who pointed out Herod's sin. Example include the following, and they're worth considering. 
After years of being hunted by Saul, David twice had opportunities to kill Saul, but he didn't. Why? Because Saul was his Lord, not as the Lord Jesus, but earthly master, and was God's anointed. When Saul eventually died, David mourned. That's honor. That's honor. Honor for that. Not because he appreciated everything that Saul did, because he appreciated that the Lord had installed him in that position. Honor. Remember Daniel and his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. That dream was where there was a mighty, glorious tree, and it was going to be cut down. Daniel was dismayed to relay the interpretation. He said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Wow. Here's a heathen king, a little crazy at time. But that was Daniel, served in his court, and yet he respected Nebuchadnezzar. And didn't, he didn't, his attitude was, well, God's got you now. That wasn't his attitude. His attitude was, wow, I don't want to tell you this because it's pretty tough. That's honor. Read the account of Joseph as, as Pharaoh's prime minister in Genesis 41 through 50 and, and be impressed with the honor and respect with which he treated his boss. Consider Nehemiah's respect for the Persian king Artaxerxes seen throughout the book of Nehemiah. Consider the Son of God and how he conducted himself during his earthly ministry and in front of hostile judges during the trials leading up to his crucifixion. Acts 21 documents Paul addressing Governor Felix and King Agrippa. Paul is humble but confident in the truth. Paul was courteous and respectful of the positions given to them by God. Our texts don't cover one additional responsibility the Christian has towards government, the payment of taxes. To cover the subject of citizenship responsibilities completely, I've included this slide, two quick verses. The first incident found in Matthew 17 illustrates Jesus' support for paying taxes, in this case the annual temple tax levied on every male over 20 years of age. Jesus paid the tax for Peter and himself with a coin found in the mouth of a fish. The second is the mandate found in Romans 13 that requires that Christians pay their taxes because the authorities are the ministers of God. Another interesting passage that says exactly who these people are. They're installed by God. They're ministers of God. Why? Remember the two reasons. To punish evil and to reward good. Pay to all what is owed to them, says Paul. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Any questions? Pretty direct stuff, isn't it? This slide summarizes the Christian's responsibilities to government. Submit and obey to the governments installed by God. Pray for governments, in particular, to maintain the peace so essential for the spread of the gospel. Not only obey, but honor government leaders with respect to their positions and appointment by God. Again, not saying endorse their evil ways, not saying that at all. No, don't do that, but respect them 
for their positions and the fact that they were appointed by God. Remember, not obeying them is a direct affront to God who installed them. Finally, pay taxes to whom taxes are due. All right, so there's a gut check. How you doing? (laughs) Are you meeting your relationship with a governing authority? You're obedient? Are you praying? You're paying your taxes? Are you honoring them? Does your speech action show respect for the governing authorities God has put in place? Boy, that's challenging, isn't it? We've lost an awful lot of respect. Regardless of who you're for or against, there's a matter of respect and honor. And that's what God expects. For the Christians, there are higher callings than the Constitution. For example, our freedom of speech rights must be bounded by the mandates of the Word of God. Does that make sense? Isn't that the higher authority than the Constitution? You may have the right to say it, but you ought to be careful and make sure that what you say conforms to the standards of the Word of God. Are there issues in your relationships with government that would mar your testimony and the reputation of your Lord? This is tough stuff. we got to encourage everybody. We all have issues. I certainly do. As I look back and study the passage, I realize, man, you know, I, I don't always have that right. I can do better. All right, that wraps up our consideration of the Christian's honorable, submissive relationship with government. Now Peter takes on the subject of Christians responsibly submit to their employer. Reading verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. Well, that one's hard to swallow too, isn't it? Boy, that's tough. The word for servants used here is not the common slave, but refers to household or domestic servants who often had very responsible positions. An Old Testament example would be Joseph, Potiphar, his master made faithful Joseph the overseer of all his possessions. The phrase subject to your masters continues the idea of submission. Notice again, not just the subject to, but subject to with all respect. So added emphasis if you're an employee with respect to your employer. God demands that Christians show sincere respect and an attitude of general, uh, general esteem for our workplace bosses. Also notice that subject with all respect applies not just to good and gentle bosses, but unjust bosses. In the culture of the day, many servants were mistreated. He still wrote it that way. Paul helps us further understand the employee's responsibility to his master when he writes in Colossians 3, verse 22, Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, Masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. What is required of employees is sincere, energetic, obedient service that supports the best interests of the master. Because the employee is serving, is not only just serving their master, but is actually working for the Lord. Verse 19, For this is the gracious thing when mindful of God who endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's a tough one. Let me see if I can help a little bit. What's Peter saying? When the employee finds favor with God, 
It's a gracious thing. And the employee who puts his trust in sovereign God is mindful of God. Putting it all together, the employee finds favor with God, a gracious thing, when instead of responding to suffering from unjust treatment with anger, hostility, discontent, or rebellion, is mindful of God by putting his trust in God's sovereign care. Peter next makes three points. First, there's no credit for enduring suffering for doing something wrong. The suffering is deserved. Second, but when you endure suffering for good works, it finds favor with God because such favor demonstrates his grace. So, how are you doing as an employee? Are you meeting the biblical standards for your relationship with your employer? Obedient in all respects? for both good and bad? Are you doing your best to support your boss? Are you working for your boss as if you were working for the Lord? Are there any things that would mar your testimony and the reputation of your Lord? I have to admit, when I look back over my career, there are moments I'd have to go back, I didn't get that right. I didn't get that right. This is the word of God speaking. The standards are high. Once again, I think we all have to continue to encourage each other. Well, having concluded his discussion on honorable, obedient employee-employer relationships and admitting there may be suffering, Peter discusses the ultimate example of perfect suffering, the suffering of Jesus Christ. Verse 21, For to this you have been called... Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you might follow in his steps. To be called in the New Testament is associated with salvation. What Peter is saying is that the Christian servant should understand that along with the call to salvation came the call to suffer in an unjust and hostile secular world. Jesus Christ provided the supreme example of how to handle undeserved suffering in his earthly ministry. Read the gospel accounts and be amazed. The word example is an interesting word. It's used only once in the Bible, and it means a template on which the student traces a copy. So, in other words, Christ provided the template for us to trace our lives on top of. Christians should be a mirror image of Christ as a submissive, suffering servant. This is one example of suffering Christians have been called to. The apostles would not stop preaching Christ in spite of orders from the Sanhedrin to cease. They were beaten and told again to cease. The apostles' reaction, the Bible says they left the presence of the consul rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Pretty amazing stuff. Acts chapter 5. And they kept on preaching. Question. Are you ready to follow the example of Christ and suffer in his name? Back to our text, verse 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter then provides several specifics about Christ's suffering, no sin, 
No deceit was reviled, but did not revile. To revile is to use abusive language. He did not threaten during his suffering. Think of who he was. Man, I would have been tempted. And he took it. He just took it. Rather, he patiently endured entrusting himself, that is, to hand over to someone to keep, to him who judges justly. In due time, justice would be done. Christ had perfect confidence in the sovereignty and righteousness of his Father. And that's who he entrusted himself to. Think of the humiliation Christ suffered in his earthly ministry, all greatly magnified in his close, in the closing days of his life during his illegal and unjust arrest, trials, and then crucifixion when the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe suffered indignation after indignation in silence. Reading verses 24 and 25, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. All this culminated when he bore our sins in his body on the cross, and God poured out his righteous indignation upon his beloved son. He did this so that we could follow his example by dying, be freed from sin, and suffer as Christ did in righteous living. Quoting Isaiah 53, 5, Peter summarizes the point, by his wounds we have been healed. Christ's wounds paid the price for our sins and resulted in healing. The work is complete. All man needs to do is accept it. Verse 25 reminds us that before salvation, we were like straying sheep, but salvation returned us to Jesus Christ, who cares for us as a shepherd and overseer or manager of our souls. So as we close, here's some summary thoughts to ponder. Victorious, submissive living in adversity quells naysayers and leads to evangelism opportunities. Christians are submit to and honor their God-ordained governments, both good and bad. The only exception, orders directly contrary to a scriptural mandate. Christians are submit to their employers, both good and bad, and give them all respect. Christians are called to suffer, following after Christ, the perfect example of submission and suffering. Are you ready? The opportunity may be nearer than you think. Prepare now. So we've talked today about lots of submission, submission to government, submission to employers. But I would tell you today as I close that the greatest submission is submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. And I would ask today, if there's any of you who don't know, have never made that decision, that you carefully consider that. The price has been paid, and it's theirs, it's yours, if you accept what he did for you. Not by works, but by his grace it will come. Don't leave this place if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I encourage you, if you do not know that, to submit today. Our Father, I thank you so much for your word again. 
some of these words are tough, Father. And I have to admit myself, I have not done as I should. Our Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit continue to work in each of us to make us more conformed to the image of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.